Good morning, everybody. Uh, it is uh, Friday, October 23rd. My name is Doug Fletcher, and this is What's the Hazard? Welcome back. Appreciate your coming. And that was the first time I've actually changed the introduction in 46 <laughs> episodes, I think. Um, I must be off my game this morning. Uh, it's cold and windy here in Omaha today. Usually, I'm, I'm happy to report we're having a beautiful day, and... Um, while it is a beautiful day, it is cold, windy, and damp, so we are. Uh, there's some in, impending doom out there, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, this is episode 46 of what the, What's the Hazard. Uh, we are, like I said, rolling up on the end of our first year. It's really been a fantastic year, uh, quite a learning experience, um, in no small part due to my sponsors, and I want to thank my sponsors this morning. Uh, typically, I just do a real short roll and just mention their names. This morning, I'm going to give you the full roll. So, um, and I hope you, uh, I hope you take note. Um, first of all, I want to thank CCS Group Custom Concrete Specialists. Uh, Josh Lose is here with me today. He's going to be one of the guests on the show. Um, he and Cheyenne and everyone out at Custom Concrete Specialists have been incredibly supportive. Um, I sincerely appreciate everything they do to help me get this podcast out. CCS Group is a leading expert on safety and longevity of concrete structures. Their focus is on superior customer service, quality materials, and workmanship. Nationwide services include structural liners, carbon fiber technology, exterior restoration, and structural assessments, all done safely. Is that, is that true? That is 100% true. <laughs> Excellent, man. Um, fantastic. And I mean, I've been on one of their sites. I hope to go to more sites. Fantastic. The work is fascinating. Um, and always done safely. Safety is the first consideration, and I appreciate that. Um, Nebraska Department of Labor on-site consultation group, Jim Cover and, and all of the consultants out of the Department of Labor. Um, you know, this is a free service. I, I have always promoted consultation. I continue to promote consultation. If you are eligible, I hope you're taking advantage of the fantastic service offered out of the Nebraska Department of Labor on-site consultation group. Safety reports, um, safety simplified. This is Steve Polich and the folks over at Safety Reports. Quality safety solutions and excellent support and affordable price. And um, they continue to grow and expand their offerings. Very innovative and very reactive or responsive, I should say, to the needs of the customers. Josh has got it on his phone. I'm looking at it right now. And I've got it on my phone. Some of my guys use it. Um, for clients that want it. It is a fantastic product. I hope you've taken a look at it. If not, get on their website and take a look. And then finally, Mid-America Martial Arts, my good friend Aaron Cerrone, who is our leadership expert, who joins me the last Friday of every month. Um, I don't have a, anything to, to roll about Mid-America Martial Arts. Just go to the website, check it out. Uh, if you are interested in physical fitness, exercise, uh, personal well-being, confidence, all of those things, man. Uh, they've got it at Mid-American Martial Arts. So to all my sponsors, thank you very much. All right, let's get to the guests. Um, I mentioned Josh Lose with CCS Group. Uh, I've also got on the, on, the, uh, on the Zoom. I don't even see your face, man. Are you, are you, you, do you have your camera on, or is this going to be from? This is going to be what you get from me today. <laughs> From behind yeah. the black tape? Yeah, I used to have my, a piece, uh, of, I have a piece my, of black tape over my camera, so. Jim Seibert. Let me just give you your Jim Seibert yeah. with the National Grain and Feed Association. Where are you, Jim? Uh, you. <laughs> this is what you're going to see because of my computer docking station. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So 
I'm in here. I love it. Okay, man. Perfect. Perfect. Oh, that's fantastic. I've got that same camera issue, I think. Well, thanks for joining me again. I know that, you know, you were with me last week, and that was a really interesting episode. Thanks for coming back. And, um, Josh, thanks for driving up, man. I appreciate it. What I really, um, I've been thinking about this for quite a long time. I, I spent, you know, about 20 years with OSHA. Uh, I spent eight years with the Department of Defense as a civilian. And I've noticed over the last 30, 35 years that the vast majority of effective safety people that I deal with have come out of the military. Uh, for some reason, the military seems to put out really good quality safety professionals. Uh, and I see them throughout the private sector. I see them in public sector positions. I know both of you uh, served. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what it is about that military service and the preparation that makes for good, uh, effective safety professionals. So that's kind of what the topic I was interested in discussing. If you wouldn't mind, if each of you could give me just a little bit of your background. I, you guys actually both, I think you served together, did you not? Josh, why don't you, why don't you start yeah, us I, off here, man? I believe Jim and I served in, at the RTI and Camp Ashton, Nebraska together. Okay. Is that like the, the Army, uh, Army National Guard? Army National Guard uh, Regional Training Institute okay. at Camp Ashland, Nebraska. I believe that's correct, isn't it? Jim? Yeah. Yep, you were there same time. You, were you? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. that's crazy. So we, we, I'm sure we crossed paths more than that, but I, yeah. I know for sure that we served together at the 209. So how, how long were you in? 23 years. Oh, my God, wow. Joined in 1996 as my junior year of high school and went to basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia as an 11 Bravo infantryman. No kidding. Went back after Can you even do year. that? You can start at 17? Was this? Yeah, I, I did a split-op program through the National Guard where – you go to basic training during your junior year, and then you come back for your final year of high school. Okay. And then you go on into your AIT, advanced individual training. Okay. And, and so, and, and, and Jim, give me quickly, give me your background as well. And then I just want to find out how you guys got into the safety field. How did, was that a punishment of some sort, or did you elect that? What was, what, what, tell me about your service, Jim. Uh, yeah, short story is I joined in 2000, um, which was my senior year. And, uh, oh I went to, uh, OSIT, which is a one site unit training. Uh, and I signed up as a field artilleryman. Um, and so I did basic and AIT back to back. Um, uh, so about 14 week course okay. down at, uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Okay. Oh, okay. Very good. And so, so is, um, is safety somehow, is it a career field or something in the military that you choose, or do you just do this as a collateral duty, or how, how did you come to be in the safety For me, kind of, they always say everybody's a safety officer in the, okay, sure. in the military, uh, but we had, when I, especially when I went to the RTI is when I really went into the safety world, because we're a school, a schoolhouse, an institution, and you have your every unit has their own safety officer. So I stepped into that role okay. as an instructor, as an additional duty. And then it just grew from there. And so what kind of, um, what kind of training do you get? I mean, do you get the traditional, you take an OSHA 10 and then they throw you into the fire or how does that work? No, unfortunately I didn't have a lot of training <laughs> leading up to it. But when I came back from my last deployment, John, who's was good to be here. I wish he would have, but mm -hmm. he sent me to the ground safety officer course down in Fort Rucker, Alabama. Okay. That goes into OSHA 10 and then a 
much more more detail on oh, the military I got you. side. Okay. So there there is a a career path, a career field that is related to safety that you would take that where you're getting yeah. that training. It's more of an additional duty. Okay. So it's not there's no MOS, I believe. Jim, maybe you can correct me on this. I believe the Air Force is the only one that actually has a safety MOS. Gotcha. Okay. And MOS yeah. is, forgive me, man, I am a civilian through and through. So It's your military occupational specialist. Okay. Gotcha. And and what, so what, what route did you take, Jim? How did, how did you get to be a safety uh, guy? I, I was not nearly as fortunate as uh, <laughs> Josh. Um, I, yeah, there, there is no uh, branch of Army uh you, there's no specialty that focuses there. Uh, and typically um, it's more of a baptism by fire that that additional duty is not giving as a, given as a blessing or a, <laughs> Hey, congratulations. Right. Yeah. It, it's nothing like that. It's there's no exactly, bump and pay or anything that comes with that. No, it, it's uh, Hey, we have to do this because of audit purposes. Uh, we need to do this and we, you know, we need to make sure that we're training safely you're the guy, here's the book, and uh, go forth and do good things. Okay, gotcha. Um, so uh, my route did not, uh, really didn't start the, the beginning or, or even towards the end of the career. I agree that, you know, the I think I said it on our last podcast that training to take lives is not worth taking a life in training. Um, so that mentality is everyone's a safety officer and we're all supposed to be looking out for each other. And there's some um, certain niches that you can get into and, and specific trainings um, that, uh, you know, we, we use a composite risk uh, management worksheet um, that we, we it, it's almost a JSA if you really think about okay. it, but it, uh, um, it kind of helps you look at what you're about to do and you try to look at all the variables to that training. Interesting. And okay. Sounds you very much a, like a JSA or something. Yeah. You, you kind of give it a level of severity and based off that severity, you have to come up with uh, mitigating actions to lower the severity level of, of what you could be having going on in that training. So um, it was kind of all those small steps, small items that are in the big picture, a little bit bigger than they are that kind of ingrain it, ingrained it into my head. And then, um, after my last deployment to Iraq, um, really what started me down this uh, safety and regulatory uh, pathway was um, a company, an ag company, uh, took a big, big chance on me in operations to come in as a facility manager, smaller company, but they had a lot of issues. And my safety career started two weeks after I took that management career uh, management position. And that is when two OSHA inspectors showed up at my door and said, Hey, we want to look at your safety program. And I said, well, what, what safety program? <laughs> of course. And, I've heard uh, that said many times. Yeah. From that point going forward, uh, I became the subject matter expert and turned around and, and I had to produce a safety program for five other facilities after that inspection. So that's where mine kicked off. But I mean, so both of you, uh, you describe doing a lot of risk assessment, regardless of what you call it, whether you call it a job hazard analysis or whatever the military term for that was, um, your, your duties involve risk assessment. And um, uh, 
the stuff that you're doing in the military, obviously there is some high significant stuff that you guys are doing. So these are critical evaluations that you're making. And that skill translates really well into what we do in the private sector. Yes. That risk assessment thing, right? I mean, yeah, is that- they, they line up very, very, very similar. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, you look at your different tasks that you're doing, you break that task down into the steps. And like Jim was saying, it just kind of breaks it down by a chart on severity levels. And, and then the higher the severity level, the higher the officer that actually has to sign off on, on, oh, interesting. on the report itself. Well, that's yeah. not a horrible concept when you get right down to it, even for the private sector. I know that uh, we do that a lot in permitting, you know, when you're talking about hot work permits or electrical safety permits, you know, that the the significance is so much higher that the level of um, approval tends to increase, you know, the person making those decisions. And that's a very similar concept. What, um, so how how did that inspection go (laughs) when the OSHA guys showed up two weeks into your tenure? It wouldn't take you too long to find it, um, but we were slapped with about $160,000 worth of fines. Um, When we, when I was asked, Hey, where's your safety program? You know, I called up to, uh, I don't know, the headquarters or our main office and, and they said, yeah, you should have a seven minute trainer manual on, on your, uh, in your file cabinet there. And as I found it and the one inch of dust on top of it, I realized, um, yeah, this is going to go, uh, badly <laughs> and, uh, you, you name it, um, any of the low hanging, low hanging fruit that the typical inspector, uh, can find. I mean, it was just, it was everywhere mm, and, yeah. uh, guardrails, stairs, ladders, uh, guarding, uh, machine guarding, um, just entanglement hazards all over the facility. And, um, one of the interesting facts or, or things about that is both inspectors, one of them walked in and I instantly recognized him. Um, I served with him at Fort Sill when I first went active duty. Okay. Uh, he was a platoon sergeant in the, the training platoon. Uh, is he and with the Omaha area office? Yes. Uh, so do I know him? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cause um, I know exactly what you were talking about. So, yeah, he was he was one of the team, huh? Yeah, and then one of the uh, one of the other guys uh, that was there, I believe, was an E seven or an E eight in the Nebraska Air National Guard. So I thought I thought that I was going to have a little bit of rapport. Sure, absolutely. No. <laughs> oh my god! Really? Yeah. I'm going to call them that. You know, there should have been some rapport there, man. Some mutual respect. This is that's well, not cool. Uh, it, it was two years later and I'm, I'm then managing a, a, one of the big ABC grain companies in central Nebraska there. And he comes walking down the hall again to inspect me there. And we were on a first name basis. And, uh, at that facility, we had zero, uh, zero citations. So he said, well, you sure turned it around. Very good. Well, so that's interesting. So um, just for the for the listeners, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now, um, Josh and Jim. We'll just kind of go in that order. Tell me what you're doing now, and then just a little bit about what the transition was like. I mean, what you know, what was easy about the transition, and what was really tough. I'm sure there were some challenges going from the military to the private sector. Josh, yes, um, as said earlier, I'm the safety director for Custom Concrete Specialist, where we repair concrete grain silos in the grain industry, and then 
in the MSHAW industry also. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Was that your first gig out of the military? Yes, first it was. Time. Yep. I retired in at the end of January and started working for CCS while I was on my retirement leave. Fantastic. Oh, really? Yeah. Fantastic. So, well, you, you landed in a good spot, man. Um, you and I both know um, that it was fortunate to get into a company where safety is so highly regarded. So that's the, what, what was that transition like? The transition was pretty seamless to begin with because of the regulatory guidance that I'm used to in the military and the fact that I was able to go through some of the OSHA training. It, it lined up. The biggest struggle for me was going from the military to working in a construction company that focuses mainly on the grain industry. So I, I did a lot of online schooling on grain handling hazards and all those different things just sure. so I could kind of know what my guys are going through when they enter a, a grain silo. Right. Oh, yeah, very good. Learn the industry. Yep. So I took a couple courses through K-State University, uh, through Jeeps, the mm-hmm. grain. I, I forget the the acronym now, but it's another grain. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's like grain. What it, you know what Jim, it is, Jim. You know it is. Grain elevator yeah. and processing. Yeah, a, yeah there's a, a grain elevator and agricultural processing yeah, society. Yeah, yeah. The Jeeps, yeah. 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 Yeah, so. so, yeah, the, obviously they had quite a bit of training. So you had to learn the industry first. I mean, the, yeah. the hazard recognition portion of it is relatively well ingrained at that point, but you got to learn the industry, Yes, which yeah. is a challenge. Yeah, that, that was my biggest challenge, switching over. Luckily, the owner, Cheyenne, is very, very safety first on all the stuff. So following him around, my, my first day on the job, I was flying down to Birmingham, Alabama, to go to an MSHAW conference. Nice. So, so getting training at that point wasn't the issue. No. It, and kind it, of learning on the job as know, well. Too. It was a lot of learning on the job and then still learning on the job Absolutely. to this point. So Yeah, that's not a lot of time. I mean, you've been with the company less than a year. Yeah. It'll be a, a year this November, this okay. coming month. So, so I mean, really to, to learn the intricacies, the nuances of an industry in a year is uh, really not even possible, yeah. frankly. No, I... There's a lot that I know, but mm-hmm. knowing it all, not even close. So what, what about the transition um, was difficult? I mean, I know, um, you know, having been with the federal government for 25 years, I worked with a lot of military folks. And when I was with DOD, I was a civilian employee of the, of the Department of Defense. And um, there was always this, you know, the military guys always, their expectations were different than the civilian guys. Has that been challenging to you? It has. I have to really kind of take that step back, uh, realizing that I'm not working with soldiers anymore. I can't treat them as soldiers. It's. Right. I have to be a little bit more politically correct, I guess, would be <laughs> the right thing. I, uh, I ended my military career as an operations officer with the RTI okay. and did a lot of the safety stuff there. So I was actually able to start my transition uh, mentally before I even okay, got sure. out of the industry, uh, out of the military and into the civilian sector. So so there was a step between okay. being out in the field as a soldier yes. and then being in the private sector. Yeah. I could see that would be particularly frustrating at times where, man, just the lack of discipline or organization or all of those things. I, I have seen the the military guys at OSHA get incredibly frustrated, you know. I mean, they are used to, as you said, they're used to dealing with regulations. Those things don't bother them. They, they acquire that ability quickly, you know, once they learn the, the specific OSHA codes and things. 
but you can see even in like the Monday morning meetings that we used to have, you can just see the pain on their face when they're, you know, just exposed to this bureaucratic, you know, public sector or private sector. Um, yeah, it's I don't know, insanity. it is a, it is a challenge. Fortunately, we have a lot of uh, crews that are from Guatemala, so they've dealt with some of those same hardships that the people in the military have, mm-hmm. and you can see the difference from the people that have had lifelong struggles compared to people that have had things handed to them. Really? Yes. That's kind of interesting. So your guys aren't standing there with their hands out expecting no, they, all of these niceties? N- none of them really are wanting those handouts. And, and a couple of, one of our lead superintendents was in the Guatemalan Army. Oh, really? So he, oh, he, right. as soon as I... So does he beat his guys with like a cane? N- no, 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 he doesn't. <laughs> but he, he has that discipline set sure. in them, and sure. he expects things of them. And when they don't do it, you can see the frustration in his face. Right. And, and I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't want to overstep, but I, I'm afraid that, um, that we don't really hold people accountable or have high enough expectations oftentimes anymore. That seems to have lessened, and I think that's a problem. Yeah. You know? I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with expectations of, you know, no, and that's one of the things from the military. A good leader will tell you, here's my expectations for you. Put it down on a counseling statement and then visit with you quarterly saying, here's what I expect. And then when they visit with you in the next quarter, they're like, okay, here's the things you're meeting and here's the things you still need to work on. And I don't think a lot of that's done in the civilian sector at all where mm-hmm. you have that expectation, here's what you need to do and follow up with it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, here's your new job, let's, let's move forward. Right. Well, there, there has been such a movement uh, in, in many of the larger companies that we hear about all the time about this. And, and, and my friend Aaron and I have talked about it. This, you know, the workplace has become like Disneyland and everybody's, you know, touchy-feely, happy. You know, you got to play a little Nerf basketball before you get to your work. St- you know, I mean, just this ridiculous yeah. shit that, you know, I mean, it drives me crazy. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm an old man, but I don't see anything wrong with um, having expectations of performance, you know, so... Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's a whole different world. Jim, tell, tell me a little bit about your transition, man, and what that was like. Well, I, I think my transition was just a, a lot easier um, than Josh's. Uh, Josh, you were a full-time uh, guardsman, correct? That's correct. Yeah, so you, you, were, you were a full-time guy, and so that was your career, and then all of a sudden, in a one-year span, you've got an immediate career change. Um, Mine was a lot easier because uh, I'm a, I am started out active duty, but then I started going to college afterwards, and I was a what is called a traditional guardsman, which means I am supposed to only drill once a month and two weeks in the summer, and, and that's kind of a joke. It ends up being a lot more than that the higher up you get rank-wise. Um, and so I had been working in between all the military schools and the, the, the attendance there, you know, I'm working on a private civilian career in the meantime of working on a military career. Both of the both sides, the full time and a traditional guardsman, they each have their own unique challenges. You know, so but mine, where I was already building that base, um, coming out and at the end of this October, I'll be fully retired out of the guard. So I'm I'm behind Josh um, on on career wise or, or time in service. Uh, but, um, I was already kind of there. So my transition out of the, um, the private company sector into what I'm doing now 
that's been difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the National Grain and Feed Association, so my title is Director of Safety Education and Training, and that's, that's changed a couple times as we've kind of figured out my position. Um, but where now I am the, the sole producer of education and training material, and then need, needing to be deprogrammed from what my military vernacular was and then what my previous company uh, you know, vernacular was. Now I'm speaking on OSHA specific items. And so if the grain handling standard doesn't say it, I'm not going to add it into my training. Understood. Yeah. I, I'm building material for a company that has no program whatsoever. And it's my hope that when I tell them the base of the rule, this is what OSHA says. When I tell them that, they'll say, okay, at least we know our starting point, but we would like to go more safe than that. Mm-hmm. That's my hope is that mm-hmm. they take it and, and that they run with it. And so um, really just this last transition for me coming from being in operations, being in leadership at the facility, having safety programs handed to me, and then you know going out and executing and, and making sure that safety was a part of everything we did. Um, now turning around and, and being the one that produces that material and gets, you know, I'm publicly speaking a lot. Uh, that's been a little bit tough for a guy that typically likes to kind of be with a small team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think that that's the military touch right there is um, I'm seeing Josh nod his head. Mm-hmm. We, we like executing missions on that small team level. Hey, you give us eight people and what you want done and give us our left and right limit. Tell us, tell us how far, tell us what the end state of the mission is. You tell us how far we can go left, how far we can go right, what is supposed to be done and then let us get it done. That's the, that is the core of the non-commissioned officer right there is give me the mission. And then that leadership at that level and making stuff happen. That's exactly what I was drawn to in operations in the grain was I had a team and we had a goal and we pushed for that goal. We looked out for each other and we took care of each other. And quite honestly, that's what I miss the most in my current job is I'm in my basement in Wisconsin by myself talking to two guys that are much more handsome than myself about being with, being with teams. (laughs) And here I am. You know, so uh, I I think that that is a big drawing of military people to the operations and the regulatory world is there's a team draw to it. And safety is that's the mission. And if if we're relining a bin, but one person gets hurt during that process, you know, as a team leader, Hey, we're kind of looking at that as a failure. Even if the customer's happy with the, the end result of the bin lining, one of our guys got hurt. So we need to go back to the drawing table. I think that's where, that's where we take that challenge up because it is a challenge to keep people safe in our industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. That whole absolutely. team concept and give me a mission. I think, you know, that, that resonates with me and I'm not a, like a, obviously not a team guy or anything like that, but I, I, I get that. Yeah, and that's the biggest thing that I missed since retirement is that military team. Mm-hmm. 
Like Jim said, I started out as a team member on a long-range surveillance detachment, and then I moved up to an MPI team leader. So there was a lot of different things there where it was you counted on your buddy to your left and your right, and you knew they were looking out for you, and you were looking out for them. And mm -hmm. that's. But can you, I mean, can you establish that in your current environment, in the current setting? I mean, it sounds like CCS group in particular um, is um, very tight very tight-knit group. I mean, you have crews that are incredibly tight. You were yeah. And that, that's the great thing about CCS being a smaller company. We have four crews of five men each. They have a superintendent, and I have a foreman, and I look at that as a, a squad leader and a team leader. Mm -hmm. And then they have their laborers underneath of them, so three other guys, and they, they do everything together. We're on the road, we're traveling, so they eat together, they sleep together. It, it's everything's together. So you got that small team, like a squad size mm -hmm. element that's going. And then I even talked to the guys that how we kind of break down the CEO as the general. And then your executive staff is, is your staff officers. And then it just goes down from there all the mm -hmm. way down to the lowest guy. So, so it makes sense. It, it does make sense. And, and they get it. They actually, they think that I'm the word that military guy coming in and talking to them. But mm -hmm. when you explain it to them and, and put it into their own perspective, they, they, they get it. Mm -hmm. There is something about that team element, too, that I think really binds people together. And uh, from a safety standpoint, I mean, we've talked about it before probably um, many times that, you know, one of, the, one of the pinnacles of a safety program is just simply having your people look out for each other. You know, I mean, if you can reach that level where it's just not – I'm just looking out for me. All I care about is me. If you if you reach that point, you've really accomplished something, and that probably is much more easily done in a in a group like that. And I actually saw it firsthand just the other day. We have a new employee; he's been there for a couple of weeks, and I had just walked out from the office and stepped out into the job site. I had my safety glasses in my pocket. And he came over and handed me another pair of safety glasses. Like, hey, you need to have your safety. The new guy did. The, the new guy goes, "Wow." I'm like, That's big. Well, I got them right here, but thanks yeah. for noticing. Cause yeah. When we get into moving and we kind of forget things, so they're actually looking out for each other, and and that's kind of what the whole goal is: is mm -hmm. if each person is looking out for those things, not just when the safety guy's there, but all the time, and and it's right. great. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know that if you're not there, it's still happening. Yep. You're still doing that. So is that that's kind of the piece that you're missing, Jim? Is that what you were referring to? Um, hunkered down in your basement. I mean, just just that interaction, that closeness with a group that has a common goal or something. Or yeah, that's that's uh, that's it. I mean, just um, you know, we we didn't talk about rank or anything or how we finished up. Um, but like my my position was a a plans officer. Um, you know, with the uh, with the maneuver enhancement brigade, and and when you get up to that level. The, just the higher up you keep going, the less and less interaction of an executing of the mission. And that executing of the mission is really where that, that bond is, is created. And you can, you can look at a staff position and I'd almost compare the, the national grain and feed association to like a battalion staff. You've got the top dog up there, and then you've got all these other lower officers that are out, and they're addressing specific pieces about what's going on across the whole battlefield slash grain industry. 
So there's multiple things that are going on and we've all got our own specialty based upon what we are, what our background is, what our, what our specialty is and our area of focus. And that is, that's echelons above the actual execution of I'm on the ground. I'm walking in the dirt. I'm at the truck dump. I'm in the grain bin. And I think that this goes for everybody. I, I think as you mature in a career, you end up moving farther and farther away from the person with their boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important that we continue to put our boots there to see what they're going through, to, to communicate with those boots on the ground. And that's one reason the NGFA hired me directly from that position so that I could communicate better with those guys and, and girls doing that work. Um, and so, um, yes, I absolutely miss being at a facility, feeling the, the, the rush of harvest and the everything's going on all at once. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is literally chaos. But if you can stand there and turn around in a circle, you can, you can kind of see the harmony mm-hmm. of the chaos of everything going around. And, and you can kind of start to make sense of it. And where I'm at now, that's, that's what I strive to do is to communicate to the facility manager, the production supervisor, and the person with the shovel in their hand. Right. And if I can create the rapport just through the written language that, oh, this guy's been here before, um, then I still feel a part of the team even though I'm, uh, I'm removed yeah. from – actually doing the work i i get that completely i you just described and it's probably natural but you've just described osha in many respects and you know the uh the team that i was part of before i went off on my own and it was very similar you had uh compliance officers you know have you know six eight ten guys that are sitting out in the cubicles they're all together you know they go out in teams periodically or they're working independently but they're just basically one organism they're the ones executing the mission. And then you've got these team leaders and, you know, no disrespect intended, but the team leaders are basically sitting on their ass, you know, at a desk and they do lose, you know, they lose that boots on the ground connection. And all of a sudden you see this evolution in them, you know, that when they first get that team leader gig, they've just come out of the field and they're still well connected and you know, after, you know, and my good, my good friend, Darwin Craig, my buddy who was also in the Army National Guard many, many yeah. years ago. But, you know, he's been in that team leader job for 20 years. And I don't think, you know, I mean, he probably misses, desperately misses making inspections and being out in the field. It's just not, it's not functional. It's not something that he's allowed to do as a team leader. You know, he's supposed to be kind of orchestrating stuff. But I know from my experience as a team leader, even that um, you get further and further away as time passes from that connection. And it's, it's unfortunate, you know, anything that you can do to anything that you can do to maintain that connection is really worth doing. And I, I see safety people all the time that they are, they, maybe they enjoy it more or they feel it's a priority, but they spend a lot of time in their office, writing up programs, doing documentation it's a necessary evil of what we do sometimes as safety people, but man, you need to be out in the facility. You need to be on the job sites. You need to be connecting with the the people. And, um, 
you know, I think that gets lost sometimes. As a person ad- advances up, I, I don't want to be too cliche here, but there is nothing more important than that non-commissioned officer position. The, the, what we call the NCOs, those sergeants, they're the ones that train and uh, develop those that are actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. And um, the team leader, uh, you, you're using that word and describing Darwin Craig, that the team leader, that is that non-commissioned officer. Mm-hmm. That squad leader, that's a non-commissioned officer. The platoon sergeant in charge of all of those separate teams, that's a non-commissioned officer. The officer's plan and the non-commissioned officers execute. And in the execution is where the incidents happen. And so that's just the, that is the importance of that position. And you would have to look a long time to find a non-commissioned officer or a sergeant. You would have to look a long time to get them to tell you that that wasn't the best time I ever had in the military. Mm -hmm. It's the most rewarding when you see your people execute and and all the stuff finally comes to them. When you see your soldier walk up and say, Hey, Sergeant, I I need you to put these safety glasses on because we care about you. Hey, I mean, that's, it's just a good feeling. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, as opposed to that I, friendly I fire that, that I would. <laughs> yeah. right. That's interesting, man. I, I, I'm, I'm totally on board. I get it. And it, um, it is such an important part of particularly safety leadership, you know, being um, connected, maintaining that connection. Um, that is sometimes a real challenge. And particularly, as you said, that, you know, the planners and decision makers oftentimes are removed from that. And that can have an impact on, obviously the planning and decision-making if you're not connected. So um, I do have one other question I'd like to ask what, you know, both of you have probably, you've been doing this a long time. You have evolved as safety professionals. Um, Looking back on how you approached safety as a young person who was maybe tasked with this as a collateral duty or as a, you know, new to the field, how, how have you changed your approach to, um, Safety, communicating safety, implementing safety, you know, executing safety. What, what, Josh? What's changed in your world, man, since you were young and brash? And <laughs> um, when I first got the task, it was when I was an instructor, and we had, I would say, it's Tradoc, which is who governs all the training that happens in the military. They governed us, so it was all here's the regulation, here's to follow it. So I kind of look at it as where I'm at now. And we have OSHA, let's tell, here's it is, you got to follow it. And I did the bare minimum at, when I started out. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I need to have an SOP. Here's an SOP. I need to have this, here's that. Very literal. Uh, very, very literal. Yeah. And, and now it's more, okay, OSHA says, here's what the standard is. And that's going to keep you out of trouble from getting a fine. But is that really all the steps that we can take to be safer, to make sure that we go home to our family at night? Mm-hmm. And it's not. It, mm-hmm. You need to go above and beyond that. Right. And you have those regulations there just to say, yep, don't do this. Don't put a ladder this way because you're going to fall off of it. Right. But, okay, can we get rid of the ladder? 
Mm-hmm. Look, let's look a little bit more far in advance. And that, that kind of goes into the military aspect of it too. Cause as we talked about the non-commissioned officer compared to the officer, the officer is the, the planner, the one that's thinking about how we're going to do it. But until you can get that, that sergeant that's out there leading or down all the way to the lowest level, which is the private until they buy into it and they want to do it. It's no different than a crew member buying into it and doing it. Like having somebody come up to tell the safety director that, Hey, you don't have your glasses on. And that's where you, you know, they get it and they go above and beyond. That's cool. Yeah. That is interesting. And that, and that is a huge point too, because I think there initially in all of our careers, um, it, it is a bit overwhelming, and so you are focused almost exclusively on, you know, checking that block, you know, whatever that requirement is, whatever that reg states, that's what I'm doing. When I was a, a new compliance officer, I was out with my book open, checking to make sure the condition I was looking at met the, the exact language in that standard. And the evolution is, um, you know, risk assessment, you know, you become more of a risk assessor and how are we going to address this hazard? And there, there's some information in the standards that we can use, and we certainly want to be compliant, but that's not the end game. And I think that is an evolution, and it takes a little while. You see that in new compliance officers. You see, I see that in new safety managers or safety coordinators, whatever. They are very literal at first, mm-hmm. you know. And um, as, they, as we um, ripen or mature or whatever the right term is, uh, mellow a little bit maybe, you start to perspective changes to some degree, and I think perspective has a lot to do with how we do our jobs as well. So that is the—I think that's the natural evolution. You're just coming to it as a former military person with a skill set that I didn't have when I started in safety. You know, which I think really prepares you much better to do the job well. You know, I came—I didn't have any of that. I didn't have any organizational skills. I didn't have any discipline. I didn't have any any real hierarchy concepts, you know, uh, and that was a struggle for me. And I think it doesn't just go to the safety professional. There, any career that somebody does after the military, they bring that with them. Just mm-hmm. it's beat into your head from the day that you sign on your line saying, this is what I, I want to do. If it's for six years or if it's for 40 years, and then they move over to that civilian world. And when I was, I, I started a nonprofit years ago, that was transitioning veterans into civilian jobs. And you're starting to see that more for Warner, for Warner trucking, for example, is really going into, Hey, here's a truck driver in the military. We're going to transition them into a truck driver in the civilian world, because there's so many things that line up that I think throughout the last 10 years is really starting to progress where people are getting out of the military and able to go into civilian jobs. And the military is doing a great job of making sure we're getting our civilian education. And because, mm-hmm. When my dad joined in the early 70s, it was, hey, we're going to have you come in and you're going to go to war and you're going to do this. And it's it's changed a lot. And it changed even while I was serving. I had no intention of doing anything outside of the military until I started getting older in age and seeing the different things. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot it, of correlation. I didn't, I didn't know you had that nonprofit. Is it still operational? It went away. But I, 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 like, the idea. I like the idea of... Um, helping with that transition. I mean, I think, you know, again, my perspective is very limited, but I think the safety career field is ex- is an excellent opportunity for people coming out of the military, whether they were in a, like, as you said, an Air Force MOS, 
in safety or they're just coming out with a, a background in risk assessment or something like that. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we help those guys do that? I would love to maybe set up some kind of a mentoring program or just an opportunity to even explore the career perhaps or how, how do we is there a way to do that? Does the military help with that? I think there's opportunities out there for the military to help with it. And like you said, the risk assessment, everybody does them for, for every task we do. A, a good leader is going to sit down and say, here's our risk assessment. Here's some of the biggest things to work out uh, for doing a PT test, for example. You have to set up cones to block off the road so nobody drives through the cones and tries to run your guys over when they're running. Um, and I think if they see that transition and how seamlessly really it is from the military over to the civilian side, you're just looking at it the same way. It may be on a different form, but it's really the mm-hmm. same thing. And the, the, I see that more every day as I'm doing stuff and, and looking at regulations and SOPs. And it's, it's very interesting to see everything correlates from what I did in the military to what I'm doing now. Nice. Jim, what do you think, man? I mean, is there a way that we can perhaps um, assist in this transition? I, maybe I'm just... Maybe that's not even a reasonable consideration. I don't know, but I, well, I, I think that there is I, obviously a fit that we we can exploit. I think there absolutely is, um, and, and I think to an extent we're seeing some of the the fruits of the labor of those that have come before us already, and and some of those that are still in current uh, military leadership in in the state of Nebraska. Um, they don't allow me to lobby on Capitol Hill because uh, evidently I'm just too country. Uh, <laughs> however, we've got those good lobby folks that go up and, and take um, the constituents, uh, you know, um, their worries uh, to heart and, and they go up and lobby on, on that behalf. And, and Josh just brought up a, a great um, uh, uh, example of a, not necessarily a, a full-blown lobby for something, but here's an example of what our, our state government has already done, and that is um, the military driver's license. And and I don't know how many times as a commander, once that, that bill was passed, where if they had uh, X number of experience and, and miles, um, I could sign a waiver and I could say, these are the vehicles this person uh, is authorized to drive in the military. Here's their military driver's license. That soldier could take that to the DMV and, and, and get a CDL. And so there's one example. There's other examples that are out there. Like um, we have vertical and horizontal uh, engineers. Same thing with those engineers. When they go to those courses, they receive um, some of them receive electrical certifications um, their construction certifications that can transition right over into the civilian sector as well. Water purifiers, uh, uh, generator mechanics, heavy wheeled vehicle mechanics. Uh, there are a lot of qualifications that can transition right over into college credits and right over into um, civilian licensed uh, uh, occupations. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for Josh and myself, Infantry is not highly sought in the civilian <laughs> sector, and neither is field yeah. artillery. Yeah. But it's those additional duties. <laughs> it's the additional things uh, that we got. When I transitioned from the Oklahoma Guard and out of active duty there up into Nebraska in 2008, 
hey, we don't have field artillery, but you're going to become a logistician. Mm-hmm, right. Now you're going to be a logistics officer. And in that time, uh, you know, I, I picked up airborne school. Okay, there's not a big call for people jumping out of the sky mm-hmm. in the civilian sector. However, it's all those additional identifiers and additional duties that Josh received and I received over the career. And it's just that it's that discipline of executing the mission. It's mm-hmm. the planning the mission. It's the thought that goes into all of the planning and that really transitioned well. And one, it's, it's just how you can speak, uh, being a good communicator and writer. I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, those are really the only, the only skills that I brought to this particular profession were communication skills, writing, um, it's it's remarkable how many people write poorly, unfortunately, and it's a fairly critical skill in what we do. And even to be able to verbally communicate to some degree is important, obviously. Um, those are critical. Is that something that you acquire in the military? You learn those things in certain positions, obviously, I guess, if you're... Uh, even when I was an instructor to, at the RTI teaching young soldiers and to be in sergeants, it, was, uh, it started out as... Uh, primary leadership development course and is now its basic leader course. There's actually a military correspondence that they have to do. Mm. They, they write papers oh, really? and, and we grade them. Nice. So it's, it's red pen and everything. Yeah, red pen and everything. Oh, nice. <laughs> Luckily now the guys have gotten a lot smarter and there's a program that does it for them. But okay. Before it was, and I'm by no means a great writer, but when you start looking at it more and you're seeing it and I can't believe all the red writings that I've had on mm even reports that I do because you always have somebody that's above you. That's going to review your work and tell right. you, here's, here's what to look for. Right. And when you're writing an award for a soldier, it gets reviewed by different levels. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, that, that is really critical. My, my mother was an English professor, which was um, probably the best thing that happened to me and the worst thing that happened to me all in one. It was like, you know, the tale of two cities. She was um, hypercritical about language and, and uh, writing you know, basic writing skills. And, um, you know, while most guys were getting their mouths washed out with soap for swearing, I was getting my mouth washed out for for using double negatives in a sentence or maybe dangling a participle or something here and there, you know. She was uh, she was a pretty pretty harsh critic, but but ultimately it, it's something that I really appreciate, you know, that the ability to write to some degree, you know, accurately. But, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, Wrap this up with one question for each of you, if you would just take a minute or two. What, if you were looking for uh, a new safety professional, probably coming out of the military, someone coming out of the military, what what particular quality, what one quality or qualities are you most interested in or would be most beneficial to somebody, you know, coming into this career field? Anything in particular that you're looking for? Have you Have you had the opportunity to interview anyone to this point for a, safety position? I have not personally, no. Um, I kind of look at back at what we talked about earlier with those additional duties. Like if people have gone through the additional duty courses with in means to safety with the ground safety officer course, it has OSHA 510 right in there. Mm-hmm. So if they've taken those steps to advance their own career inside the military, that's going to help them outside of the civilian world, which... Right. I didn't notice before I took those courses how much those re- regulate over to what we're doing now. So I think it's looking at somebody that's able to look at regulatory guidance, 
transfer that into what we're doing now in the civilian sector because everything is written out there for you. You have to follow. We have a government for a reason, and that government tells us what we can and can't do. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of that point A to point B, like we were talking earlier. Jim brought up that we're going to give you a mission, and here's the end point. We don't care how you get there, but here's A, here's B, and let's get there. And then that's mm-hmm. going to give them yeah. the chance to think on their own because there's a lot of people that struggle with thinking on their own. You can Some people aren't made for Mm-hmm. life outside of the military other than going from that into a, something that regulates with a, a truck driver a law enforcement uh, so it, right but kind of go but on you on. have to in addition to having been able to follow those rules and requirements there there is a certain need for those problem solving skills on your own you're going to be put in that position certainly so that you would want that to be part of the package definitely yes what about you jim what do you think man you, you know what? I've got nothing to add to what Josh just said. I think that that's uh, that's, that's what we're looking for. Yep. That that's it. Very good. Well, I do have to. Um, there is one observation I need to make before we wrap this up. First of all, I want to ask you guys, and I I mean this in all sincerity. It, it's not intended to be um, facetious, certainly, but is it appropriate to thank? Um, retired military, former military for their service. I mean, do people thank you for your service? And if they do, is that, if it's meant sincerely, is that something that you appreciate or is it? Absolutely. I Um, I wonder all the time if I should do that or not. Yeah. I I think any chance that you can give to, and being retired myself, I, if I see uh, an older gentleman that has a Vietnam hat on, I go up and thank, shake his hand and thank him and, Thank him for our service, and you can tell it really means a lot to people. Very and good. Yeah. It's knowing that somebody cares. If they're saying it just because they're saying it or if they're saying it because they're sincere, either way, it, okay. it makes me feel good that, hey, this is yeah. what I've done. Very cool. Yeah, interesting. Would you agree? Yeah. Um, it catches a lot of people off guard when somebody comes out of their way to do that, and and sometimes, you know, as a, a vet, you get a little tongue-tied, and my my best response to that is thanks for the support. Mm-hmm. Um, because honestly, if it wasn't for the Patriot, that's willing to go think of that. First off, you know, if they're coming out of their way, they're a little bit patriotic and you know that they support the uniform service mm-hmm. and they support you. And so just thanking them for that is, um, yeah, it's a, it's a two way street. I think it's always appropriate to okay. when you can recognize any uniform service, a, a first responder, any of those folks, um, right. you thank them cause they've really got tough jobs and, um, yeah, just Agreed. make them feel good for the moment. And that, <clears throat> I, I completely and that agree. A lot of people. Well, you know, and, um, for the service that you're offering now provide as safety professionals, you know, I mean, that, that, that continues the service. I mean, safety is definitely a service job. It is about people. It's, uh, you know, it's a job about relationships as much as anything. And um, so it's just kind of a continuation of what you've been doing most of your adult lives. So, you know, that's, that's exceptional. I do find myself, I have no idea how to, to thank, um, you know, the law enforcement guys. I, I try to wave to them when I drive by, and I know they look at me like I'm some, you know, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how to do that, you know. I don't encounter, you know, police officers, law enforcement guys on foot very often, 
you know, usually we're just passing in a vehicle and you try to wave and not, I'm, I'm so fearful. They think I'm flipping them off or something. I don't, I don't, I'm not, you're not sure what to do, man. So, you know, it's, yeah. I don't just know. Just take that opportunity to say thanks. If you see them in public, yeah. if they're walking and absolutely they they have a harder job than anybody out there oh right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. And I think we need to, to go to those, make those efforts to try to let them know that. Absolutely. So, gentlemen, I appreciate it. This is really fascinating to me, and I, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, so many of the safety professionals that I've worked with have a military background. You know, Mr. Jacobson, as you alluded to earlier, whose name shall remain unspoken. Um, you know, Darwin, Matt, Mike, all you know, a number of guys, Nick, you know, guys that I worked with in the OSHA office all had served and they were all exceptional safety people or are, I shouldn't say were. Um, I do want to close with one thought. Tomorrow is the start of Big Ten football. I don't know if, well, you're up in Wisconsin, man. You're aware of that, but you're a Nebraska guy, I'm assuming. Yes. So I'm a Nebraska guy. I was born and raised here. You know, my father was a rabid Nebraska fan and I attended school at The Ohio State University. Uh, which is where I met my wife, um, and my wife is a diehard Ohio State fan. There is an Ohio State flag flying in front of my house right now, uh, just pissing off the neighbors, of course. And uh, we're having some folks over for a socially distanced um, outside. We're going to watch the game outside. It's probably going to be 30 degrees and snowing, but man, damn it, we're going to simulate a tailgate and watch the game outside. And this is the worst day of the year for me. Because I'm a Nebraska fan, born and raised. I became an Ohio State fan as I I spent 12 years in Columbus, not all of them going to school. I mean, I got out, you know, it didn't take me quite that long. But, um, you know, my allegiance is just so torn that I just hate this game. When Nebraska was in the Big 12, it wasn't a problem. And um, now that they're in the Big 10, man, this really sucks for me, so... I am not looking forward to it, regardless of who wins, because one of my teams is going to lose, you know, so. One of them will win, I guarantee One of them will win. One of them will lose. My wife will either be really happy or it's it's almost like I can't cheer for Nebraska because I look over at her and she's staring at me, you know, so it's it's horrible. But I'm really excited that it's time for Big Ten football, man. Finally. Finally. I just cannot watch that ACC, SEC stuff. It just doesn't do it for me, so. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me today. I, I think it's a really fascinating topic, and um, I, I'm going to continue looking for ways that we might be able to uh, entice former military into the career field and maybe ways that we can even, you know, maybe that's something we can do here locally, look at ways that we might be able to do that. But I, I really think that, man, that, that there's, a, there's a real um, natural fit you know, for guys that are coming out of service. So, you know, continuing their service in, an, in another capacity. So I hope you have a great weekend, fellas. Thanks for joining me. It's good to see you, Josh. Thanks for nice coming in. Thanks Hunker for down, me. Jim. Um, hopefully it's not snowing up there, buddy. Hopefully you get, in, right. get outside and enjoy have the weekend. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.